Hello everyone and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sam Talks Technology. I've got a wonderful guest, pretty famous guest actually, his name's James Minter. He today is a headhunter for Hannington Tame, but he's probably better known to most of you as the convivial entrepreneur who started Adam Street. James, how are you? Very well. I don't, I'm not sure I'm famous, but it's a very small, select bunch of people. They might know me quite well. Well, in the group of people that know me, <laughs> you're very famous. So there you go. You can you can take that one. James, where do we find you today? Where are you self-isolating? I am, well, I'm very lucky. I'm in uh, Hertfordshire, just outside London, where we just moved to, we, we sort of planned to move out here from London to look after my mother-in-law. And we sort of got all our bits and pieces and admin done just before lockdown happened. So we've been uh, sitting here um, getting to know the countryside, going on long walks, long bike rides, and uh, thanking God that we're not in Fulham. Yes, yes. (laughs) Self-isolating would be in town would be awful. Now, today I said you're a headhunter for Hannington Tame. How long have you been a headhunter? Seven years now. And do you enjoy it? Clearly, it must be lucrative, but is it enjoyable? I love it. When I was thinking about what I should do um, as Adam Street was coming to close, I thought, well, I'm qualified to drive ships around, having spent some time in the Navy, and be a dodgy nightclub owner, neither of which uh, I want to do anymore. What am I going to do? And two people came to me and said, well, you must become a headhunter. You know, why have you never thought about the world of recruitment? And I, you know, I'm thinking quite a lot of myself being, you know, a, a club owner and therefore socially acceptable. I thought, God, I, I, you know, it's like someone saying, why have you never become an estate agent? I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, estate agent and headhunter, they're never the two most popular career choices. No, no, no. And apparently everyone, anyone, most people sort of had the same sort of thought running through their head before they start doing this. But and as they both said, you know, you've got a fantastic network. You, you love meeting people. People like seem to like you. You know, why don't you come and get involved? And I absolutely, I mean, I, I suppose, like, I hope, like most people in business, the most important thing in business is people. And and I know through the 15 years of Adam House, which is a service offices upstairs, and, and Adam Street, we were, we employed, I think, about 50 or 60 people in the end. And then there's a little side venue, venture where I went off and ran a uh, music venue with some Rastafarians in Notting Hill. Um, <laughs> As you do. you know that? No. I do know that one. I remember meeting and, you and talking uh, about that one. You know, it, it, the, all those things, they, they sink or swim on the people you employ. And it's just such an important part of business. And as a headhunter, you're in a very privileged position. You'll go in a bit like a management consultant. You'll, you'll look under the hood and you'll be privy to to a degree so to the truth of what's going on in the company you have to quickly sum that up and and then go and find the right person as a solution to that problem so actually i i do as a people person i really really enjoy it i love the sort of project management side of it and when it all comes together it's a true win-win-win situation where the company's delighted that you found someone who's going to sort their problems out hopefully the employee is delighted to be working at this fantastic company and we get paid money so it's 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 great business now one of your recent clients has been skyscanner 
Yeah, so we just, yeah, we're still working with them, but we've sort of come to the end of the main, again, luckily, just before sort of coronavirus hit, because obviously they've been badly affected by, you know, they are, I don't want to say frontline, that sounds like they're sort of nurses and doctors, but they're, they're very much, they've been very badly affected by, obviously, by what's going on. But we've been, we've been in there, so they, they've been rebuilding a global integrated marketing team, and they're very, very good at hiring devs and uh, product people, uh, and some of the best in the world, but not quite so good at the marketing side of things. So we've gone in and we've done everything from paid search specialists all the way through uh, lifecycle to the more fluffy end of things in brand, but it's such an important element that those people are digital people nowadays, obviously, and the way those all integrate together and connect together. If I was still doing startups, you know, A, I used to think, oh, I'm not sure I can afford the headhunter. You know, it's 15% plus whatever. Uh, how much? 30%. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's gone up since my day. But, you know, I'd say, well, why don't I just get on LinkedIn? I'll just find a connection there. I'll hunt down X, Y, or Z, or I'll talk to a buddy. Is, is headhunting any different to that? Is that just because you've just got a better Rolodex than the rest of us? Well, I think... When people ask that question, you think, well, I think you're sort of looking at it from the, from the wrong end of the lens. <clears throat> okay. In that, I think if you are able, which the vast majority of people are, if you're able to go out and find the right people because you've got a really good network and you know exactly what you're looking for and you know where to find those people, and that is quite often the case, then that's what you should do. If you are in a situation where you don't understand the market, so, for example, we worked with a, I think it's had over more than 2 billion euros a year, a company called Pooch that owns things like Paco Rabanne, Carolina Herrera. So My first aftershave. Well, there you are. So, <laughs> so it's in Barcelona, a family-run business, and they, they totally understand the way that their markets have worked in the past, but they have this new thing called the internet, and you can sell things over the internet, and how on earth does that work? And... The market departments talk to the brand departments and they say, look, we think we should be selling stuff through Amazon. And the brand department say, that's disgusting. We can't possibly do that. And then the marketing department go back to them and say, well, look, we found out that actually we're selling more stuff through Amazon than any other channel in the world. It's just that we're not selling it ourselves. It's going through the grey market. And then they go and talk to one of their biggest distributors like Macy's. And they find out again that Macy's is now selling more stuff through the website than they are through bricks and mortar stores. And Pooja got a whole great team of people who liaise with Macy's about the product placement and the legal side of things and export. And, but not a, not a small team, not one person, nobody in the whole company understands how to talk to the online side of the business. So for, in that case, for example, we found some from eBay. So, so there are situations where there's speed, or where the talent acquisition team just doesn't have the in-house knowledge around these new developing areas of digital marketing or e-commerce. Um, so I think, and I, you know, I used to laughingly say, well, you know, at least I'm not just moving financial directors from one financial director pigeonhole into another financial director pigeonhole, because that must be really, really boring. But I'm sure in the world of financial directors, you have different flavors of financial directors. And, if you're only hiring one financial director every hopefully three or four years, the expertise to do that job is going to come probably from a consultancy or a company rather than internally. I reckon you should just phone up Primark. They're probably needing a lot of an on online team right now. 
I think uh, that got a, I, got, I got a lot of replies on LinkedIn when I said, should I, bought, should I build a website? <laughs> oh, I think they've gone from, I was listening to their numbers, they went from 680 million to zero, to yeah. zero. Okay. Um, and, but they're still not planning to go back online. They still think they're going to open shops and go and sell old stock and then get back up and running that way. Yeah, well, good luck, son. Okay, so headhunting is what you do now. Most people know you as the owner and entrepreneur who started Adam Street. So maybe you could tell us how you transitioned from being a Navy officer, which some people may not know who you were, to to a nightclub owner, which seems like a very odd juxtaposed from Her Majesty's service to uh, the evening wear. Yeah, so I joined the Navy straight after school. I'd sort of always I'd sort of read too many Solis and Amazon books and Hornblower and Joseph Conrad and really fallen in love with the romantic idea of running away to sea. <clears throat> and I think like any sort of teenager was trying to run away from home and, and try and find something completely different. So did that for 10 years, but at the same time, it wasn't quite as hornblower-ish as I thought it was going to be. So I enjoyed myself and, and it was an amazing experience and I learned a lot and met the most extraordinary range of people from, you know, your average sailor from Newcastle, Liverpool, Scousers, Geordies up to, and you would have experienced this yourself, all yeah. the way to, you know, Prince Charles and everyone in between. So that was great. But, it, but it, after 10 years of that, it's time to leave. I had no idea what I wanted to do. <clears throat> And my father, to cut a very long story short, had a property company that was deeply in debt, but had some quite interesting assets. And of these assets, one of them was 7, 8, 9 and 10 Adams Street. And I'd never really seen these buildings. And, and I said to my father, look, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but what's going on with your business? Is there anything I can do to help? And he moved up to Scotland. And he said, well, I've got this vague idea that that turning these buildings into service offices, I, I don't know what they are, but it sounds like quite a good idea. And this was in 1998. So pretty early on in the world of, of service offices. I went off, I think even before I left the Navy, did a little business plan <clears throat> and, and went actually around the corner somewhere in St. James's had a very small building about a quarter of the size of Adam Street. And they were charging an astronomical amount of money for, for rooms as service offices. And I thought, brilliant. Well, if we have done, you know, a few blocks away, off we go. The bank was so sort of stunned by the amount of debt my father had sort of uh, cranked up that they were happy for anything to happen as long as there was money coming in. So we experimented with one of the offices. It went incredibly well. Timing could not have been better because this was just as, in property terms, there'd been a massive slump during the mid-90s and things were slowly turning the corner but more excitingly what we what we're about to see was the idea that the whole business world was going to go mad for dot-com boom and as i would say we were sort of almost selling the shovels for the gold rush that was dot-com boom because if you were a dot-com boomer you'd raise lots of money very easily and one of the things one of the major things you spend your money on was offices in those days particularly and so we could not have opened it a better time. One of the officers went, well, the next two we redeveloped because we were making enough money to cash flow that. And we moved the concept through to all four offices. And I think within about 18 months, we'd taken a, a situation where we had about £140,000 a year free cash flow that was trying to, trying to service one and a half million pounds worth of interest payments. 
And suddenly we had 180 grand coming in a month and with the relatively low, apart from the interest payments, with the relatively low cost base. So, um, <clears throat> so that was great. And then underneath was this old actors club, which is part of the Freehold. And I had gone down to go and find out what this actors club did and found out that they had a three o'clock license. And having been at sea for quite a lot of time, about 10 years, and being handed the idea of, of owning a nightclub, even if it was in an appalling state, I thought, wow, this is a very exciting way to meet women. Um, <laughs> a, a naval officer. Was that in the business plan? Well, I, I think my father said, you know, you're just interested in meeting lots of women. I said, yeah, I am. But imagine how much passion I'm going to put into the business. <laughs> anyway, but you know, it's important to have a passion for what you're doing. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> I like how Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook. So, you know, really same sort of idea. Very, very similar. Yeah. Um, so... I suppose there were two ideas behind Adam Street. One was my, my desperation to meet women. The second one was that we had, in those days, there were these events which went on, like, First Tuesday. Do you remember First Tuesday? I remember First Tuesday. There was a smaller version of that called Digital People, and they were, they were in one of our meeting rooms. We had 60 entrepreneurs talking to the head of Intel Venture Capital Europe in 1999 about how he had something like, you know, £15 million to spend in Europe that year, which sounded like a huge amount of money in those days. And, and there's this extraordinary buzz of energy in the room. And I, I got very excited by this. And I thought, you know, there's, London is all about ideas meeting money. That's, that's if you want to really, really pare it down. And there are lots of places, you know, if you've got a big corporation, you go to the big merchant banks. But where is there a place where entrepreneurs are encouraged to meet? And if you've got a club, in those days, if you went to a club, you weren't allowed to, you know, if you went to go to a small St. James's club, you probably still aren't supposed to talk about business. Even in Soho House back in the day, business was discouraged. But I thought, what a ridiculous attitude. I mean, actually, people talk about business in these clubs anyway. So why not really go for it and make it much more reverse? Make it a place where you've got these entrepreneurs' events happening. Why not have a fixed place where entrepreneurs actually are known to be hanging out? That will attract investors. Entrepreneurs probably won't have very much money, but their investor friends will. And anyway, isn't it fun to have that going on during the day? And then that can just slowly merge into a bit more debauchery at night time i don't know whether things have changed because i got older. <laughs> sounds like a perfect plan to me exactly but in those days i think we all had credit cards and you know going out and spending a huge amount of money it seems extraordinary now but you could drop you know maybe people still do this i don't know maybe it's because i'm so old i just don't see it anymore but you know drop several hundred pounds on a night buying bottles of champagne and cocktails and having a good time once we got the service office up and running, I, I sort of had a bit of success under my belt and I was able to go to, to my father in the bank and say, look, we should now be setting up this club. And so that's, that's sort of the very beginnings of, of Adam Street. So Adam Street itself, I remember going down there, there, was, there were Ollie Barrett and Robert Locke and many, many other characters that frequented it. But you were telling me earlier that, you know, though I only saw the entrepreneurial events. I mean, what sort of other events would have been going on down there? Tell us. I mean, this is, this is what I'd like to hear. Well, it was quite a wide range. So, and I, so, so again, another thing um, that was going through my head is, is sort of the origin of the club. Is I, I thought that, and I think the other beautiful thing about London is it should be, rather than having a monoculture of people, which I think a lot of the other clubs still have I mean I still have complaints from people who go to Shoreditch House and say oh my god it's full of digital marketers and they're all pitching to their clients and blah 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 it's so boring you know that that you're not that's not a very fertile environment 
I think exciting things happen where some really boring, possibly quite smelly scientist has got this amazing idea and he meets an Ollie Barrett who then connects him to a guy who's got some money. And, you know, it's, it's where you have those different influences coming in that interesting things happen. That's, that's hmm. you know, been written about a lot since I did it. And again, if I looked at my friends from Durham, they were all going off to the city and being very clever, but just competing against each other, not really adding very much value to the world. So, so from the word go, I wanted this to be a place where there's a real mix of people uh, and lots of different things going on. So this is a very long-winded answer to your question. But it, so, so that informed the membership, but also to a degree it informed the, the events we had there as well. So we had everything from, uh, again, as we were talking about before, sort of, we were right next to Westminster, so quite a lot of political influences. There's some Tory scandal down there where a Tory MP got, he, he was sort of bugged by a Labour guy who came and <laughs> listened to what was going on and, and next day um, there's a big scandal in the papers. Tom Watson used to come down, Chucko Moona. I'm trying to think if we had any Liberal Democrats, I'm not sure if we did, but, but it, was, it was a good old mix-up of, of what was going on in Westminster. We had, you know, I, I suppose the most famous party we had there was the Duran Duran Brit Awards party, where the next morning I opened up the Evening Standard and they had a sort of league table of the eight best parties in London that night. Number four was the official Brit Awards party and number one was the Duran Duran party at Adam Street. It's like literally winning the premiership. It's just unbelievable. So, and we were quite close to Leicester Square. So yeah, we had, we had our sort of fair quotient of sort of nice celebrity parties going on and... Another strand to the club was we were very much in the middle of the West End, so we had a lot of actors who came down. Woody Harrelson. I'm trying to think of all the other people. I need to talk to my membership secretaries to remember who all the great people were who came down. When you look at something like Soho House now, Soho House London, New York, LA, wherever else they'd have to have out of town, did you ever think that you could grow Adam Street into something like that? Was that ever in your aspiration? Yeah, I would have loved to. I think if you look at us as... So my latest narrative on Adam Street is that we were the Georgian version of WeWork because we had service offices and a co-working space and we, we were the first people to, to really do that properly in London. And if you look at where other people... Just if you look at the service office side of things, so the office group, Regis to a degree, although I, I, we're a long way from Regis, but WeWork is, is a, you know, has, has expanded obviously very fast and has, through some quite strange business practices, but you can see the demand is there. I think, unfortunately, we were in a situation where, and I, I still can't see how we could have got out of this, we, we, we were so in hock to the bank mm. that we couldn't really take what was a great concept and get any other investors in because they just look at the the balance sheet and go well why would we get involved with you uh, and so I, there's there's never i would love to have done that yes is the answer and i think it would have gone really really well and if you look at people like as i said the office group run by ollie olson fabulous modern buildings modern design beautifully tailored to to looking after someone working in an office environment as a customer instead of as a tenant um, you know, that, that, that's, that's absolutely the kind of stuff I look up to and think, oh, God, I wish I'd been able to do that. So what happened to Adam Street then? It, it opened sort of 2001-ish as a club. Yeah. Um, so the offices, like- yeah, offices started in 99, club opened in 2001. We, in 2008, so, so my, 
either it was going to go so incredibly well that we would start paying down some of uh, the debt in the company, or we were going to go bust. It was going, you know, it's a pretty sort of black or white situation. And so I spent um, a lot of time looking at that second situation. I thought, well, if we do go bust, actually, hopefully, we're in quite a good position to try and preempt that by getting a fresh investor on board who is a friendly investor. He's going to come in, um, uh, invest in the free of the property, but also like the fact that we're making way more than you normally get as a rent. And I thought that that was going to happen in 2008. It very nearly did happen in 2008 when we had the crash in 2008. But we kept going until 2012. And I managed to find a, when the bank said, look, uh, it's time to wind this up. And I managed to find a, a, an institutional property investor that was worth 800 million. I thought that's pretty good. We spent a lot of time doing due diligence and put in a, a bid to buy the buildings out of receivership. But in the end, the building got sold to the Rubin brothers, who were always in the top five in the, the rich list. And, and that was that. Something, it, was, it was a gamble that, that I may or may not be able to sort of take it over. Um, but I lost that gamble. It's a shame. I'm just, just thinking, did you really market Adam Street at the beginning or was it word of mouth? I mean, I never remember how I heard about it, but I do remember just being told about it. Yeah, so I, I think I'm institutionally bad at marketing. Uh, I much prefer word of mouth. But what, what I... I'm going to answer your question in a long way around, but I, re- I remember going to look at other clubs and think, well, what is it, you know, from an interior decoration point of view, or, you know, what is it about a club that makes people want to go to the club? Is it because it's marketed? Actually, there's this really weird thing about a private members club is you sort of can't market it. I think you can market it, but that allowed me the excuse to say I shouldn't be doing any marketing, but I had to find other ways of doing it. I remember going to, do you remember the Met Club? Yeah. Yeah, so that was a that was a real sort of hangout in the sort of late nineties, early noughties, just off Park Lane, and and I remember going there thinking, what is it about this place that makes it so special? And I went there during the middle of the day, and it was it wasn't very exciting from an interior design point of view. And I thought actually the thing thing that really makes the club is the people. It's and it sounds really obvious, but actually you go to a club to go and see the people. You don't go there to see the amazing bar. So, and, and I had a problem because I had been at sea for 10 years in the Navy, so I didn't actually know anyone in London. I just had this amazing building. And I thought, okay, I'm going to think of myself like a beautiful woman who wants to have sex, but doesn't want to necessarily shout about it too much. Because if you have a three o'clock license, then that's quite a special thing in London. And so I had to sort of gently put the word out that I had this in. Actually, it turned out that I had a friend, I was talking to a friend of mine, Natalie, who's instrumental in setting up the club. And she was talking, and this was Dotcom Boom Days, she was talking about how she was going to set up a virtual club. And I said, well, why are you going to set up a virtual club? And she said, well, I've got this great friend of mine from, from uh, school. She was at Cheltenham Ladies College. And one of her best friends is a girl called Amy Gadney. Amy's stepmother was Faye Mashler, who's the Evening Standard restaurant critic. She's now married to Tim Bevan, who runs Working Title Films. And, and I said, wow, that's amazing contacts. Why don't you set up a proper club if that's the case? She said, well, you know, they're very difficult to find and, and they're quite expensive. I said, well, I know this sounds really weird, but I've actually got a club. Come and have a look. And to me, that was sort of the missing 
piece of the jigsaw puzzle because I, I think I, I knew how to develop a space. I could, I'd sort of seen I could do that with the service offices. What I didn't have was all the connections and the ideas. And there's absolutely no way in the world I, I would have been able to do it without those, those two girls coming in. So they had a fantastic set of, of completely mixed contacts. They were, I sort of probably think I'm very rude in saying that they're Guardian reading Cheltenham Ladies College girls. So they had a pretty broad mix of friends. And we we looked at how other clubs are set up and we went down the committee route where you, you get a committee together of sort of 20 people. They all have to introduce 10 people each. That gives you a seed membership. And that sort of worked. I think no one, you, 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 the, one of the problems with the club, it's the proper sort of crossing the chasm stuff is actually having 300 members of the club is nowhere near enough because only a very small proportion of those people are ever going to want to come down at any one time. So we then put on lots of events, which, you know, comes down to these, you know, either political events, digital events. And yes, it was very much word of mouth. I think we, we also loved, like any business should, PR, because that is obviously free marketing. Yeah. And I very much wanted to try and get as many newsworthy events into the club as possible so that there's a very steady, small feed of, in the background of people's mind, oh, this, that thing happened at Adam Street and this happened at Adam Street. Uh, and I think, yeah, that, that worked really well. It was very much a word of mouth um, campaign. So, unfortunately, it closed. I mean, Michael Acton Smith famously said he'd throw himself under a bulldozer rather than let somebody else take it over. Um, <laughs> you had Chunker Ramoon and Tom Watson, who you mentioned earlier, fighting your corner, but it clearly went somewhere else. Did you think, in hindsight, that there was anything you could have done differently? Or was it just a fait accompli? I think... Well, I think there are two different things. That they, they, would have, they would have had to be... It would have had to be in a different set of circumstances. So yes, I would love to have expanded the whole thing and, and, and done a Soho House. And much as I might take the piss out of Soho House of being a bit of a monoculture, they have done the most phenomenal job. It's a fantastic brand. They've expanded you know, the most exciting places around the world. So I, I suppose the only two things that could have been different were you know from a financial point of view obviously if we had somehow managed to engineer our way or had a friendly investor who could somehow see their way to, to getting us out of the financial lock we were in that would have been amazing and I suppose the other thing um, is whilst Natalie Lane was fantastic at the beginning of our journey I think I probably needed to have some kind of a partner, which I suppose goes back to that sort of investor thing again, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be an investor, but I, I, I wish I'd found somebody else, a mentor or a partner or somebody who had the same vision as me and could help me work our, our way out of the problem we're in. I think those would have made a difference. Otherwise, I don't know. I suppose the only other thing I could say is we had the most fabulous restaurant and that was a very expensive thing to run. Right. We, we were extremely lucky because Faye Mashler was sort of vaguely connected with us through Amy. We ended up getting this amazing guy called Nick Terrain, who's sadly no longer with us, who brought an entire Michelin one-star kitchen brigade from um, Prulis restaurants, which is way beyond my ambitions as a, as a putative restaurator, but it's something I couldn't really say no to at the time. And we, we have fabulous food, but it was very expensive to run. 
So, I, yes, if anyone's thinking about doing clubs, try and avoid food. It's, 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 booze is very, booze doesn't go off. It's very high margin. Food is a nightmare. One thing you said was that you started it after a slump, just before the dot-com bubble. There was a slump in property prices in London. Yeah, well, actually, the club itself started in the slump of the dot-com bomb. So we started in you know, 2001, we literally started as things were going horribly wrong. Rents upstairs, which had been supporting the whole you know, building of the club, collapsed. Thankfully, quite briefly, as they came back again fairly quickly. But yeah, no, we, we went through that then. And we also did it again in 2008. Which brings me to my next question, which is, we are in a slump. Guaranteed there's going to be a recession. And people will want to get back out eventually and party. I mean, we, it's just a cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No idea of interest start again you know find that co-investor find that right partner and woohoo here we go adam street all over i'm sure i could be persuaded but they'd have to be pretty spectacular there'd have to be pretty spectacular financial firepower behind them (laughs) can we not just have one night at adam street then as a party well we should do i know i'm very lazy and we should definitely sort that out i mean it's there i'm sure we could hire it for a night and have a laugh yeah I was talking to Steve Pankhurst from Friends Reunited, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we should have a Friends Reunited, you've reunited. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah, he's, he's, Steve's a great guy. Well, Steve, Steve's a great, poor Steve um, invested in a hotel, and I don't think that went very well. So, yes. um, I, think, I think running food and beverage operations, whether they be hotels, restaurants, bars, is a very well-known article by A.A. Milne, saying the second most obvious question I'm asked all the time is why have I never set up a restaurant myself since I know so much about it? Because the reason is I know enough about it not to even think of it. Now, um, looking forward to the future as we are, we're all self-isolating, but it won't be forever. Where do you see the market going? Because obviously a lot of startups are struggling. The government isn't backing the startup community pretty much. I think it came out last week only with a billion pound potential investment, but I hear there's a number of caveats to it that, that restrict why some people will qualify for funding and others won't. But as a headhunter, going back to what you do today, do you see that we will you know, go forth and bloom from this point forward or just see a few years of you know, doom and gloom before we start to get back on our feet? Well, I don't know. I think, well, if you consider the way the economy is set up nowadays compared to how it was, you know, we're, even though we're locked down, we're talking here, you and I talking to each other, we're able to see each other, you know, huge amounts of business can still be done over the internet. I think anyway, we're in such a, a transition in the economy that anyone who thinks they've got a job for life is, is you know, mad. I think, you know, just to big up the world of recruitment and headhunting, I think, you know, I see one of our jobs as being the sort of oil in the machine that ho- helps lubricate people successfully moving from one job to another. So, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of pain, but I do think we're in a very good place to bounce back very quickly. It remains to be seen how, how quickly that can be. And, and I suppose the unknown is how much it's knocked everyone's confidence. But in terms of the physical systems, the people being in the right places to do things, given that the, the, the government's pumping huge amounts of liquidity into the, into the, the world's finances, and, and that's happening across the world. 
I don't know, we'll see. But, but I don't, I'm not too pessimistic about it. I, I tend to look at COVID as the great accelerator. If you look for silver linings in it, I think for those of us who are digital and online, it, it, it's just accelerated models that we've talked about for a long time. You know, so many people have now become trained with video conferencing and more comfortable with it. So this could become a, a new norm rather than commuting on the 7.30 into a packed London underground i also think analog businesses that were i mean we all knew the high street was dying it was just how soon it would die i mean those that were left were things you couldn't get online you know like your your hairdressers and bars and pubs and clubs and whatever so i think we're going to see an accelerated model and i actually think coming out of this yeah it'll take six months maybe but i do think coming out of this there's going to be lots and lots of new businesses that probably may not have started as soon i think there's going to be a loss around the eco environment i think there's going to be a loss around some of the models that we all talked about i think we'll accelerate models around home working and video conferencing will improve i mean we're at 1.0 probably or 2.0 yeah. um so i i'm actually quite optimistic post covid that the digital world world that we frequent will actually bounce back quite quickly yep my other weird thought is that if you look at, I think almost anyone who's, who's done amazing things in their lives, and I, I'm particularly because I'm a sucker for reading military and naval history, if you look at any great general or admiral, all of them have spent a period of time either very ill or in, incarcerated somewhere in a prison. Okay. And it's quite interesting when you look at it, the amount of people who, who've done amazing things have been forced at some point in their life to stop and do nothing for a period of time, which has allowed them to actually sort out their thoughts and then hit the ground running with some you know, stuff they would never have done if they'd just been involved in the day-to-day life without any break at all. I think Nelson was stuck in his garden in, in Norfolk for something like three or four years, and he dug an enormous hole in his garden because he had nothing else to do. For example, I'm trying to think, Churchill was in prison. I, have a look at, you know, anyone you admire. Oh, Shakespeare wrote a lot of plays while he was self-isolating. Exactly. Have a look at anyone you really admire and look back in history and look back at their whole life. And there probably will be a period where they were completely stuck. Newton, apparently, you know, was, was getting, getting completely mental in a good way whilst he was out of Cambridge because of the plague. It swings around. But obviously, if you're a uber driver and you haven't had any work for three months then that's um that that's you know really not good and i, I don't think that's a good thing but so there are some positives to be taken out of it well i'm looking forward to whatever great thing comes out of your self-isolation in hertfordshire oh well i'm looking at organic chicken farming as my latest <laughs> <laughs> excellent we've got four we've got four chickens i think um, you'll need more than that no no i know, I know it's my mvp and, and I'm just reading about the terrible states. You know, all this chlorinated chicken, we are, we're actually we're quite right to be worried about American chlorinated chicken. It sounds disgusting. I've just been, I'm investigating sort of ways of, of, of very, very small scale organic farming. So, yeah. uh, I totally digress, but a friend of mine locally is, runs Challenge Chickens. They are an organic farm chicken and home delivery, direct to home eggs. I need to talk to him. He's brilliant. I'll connect you. Now, James, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating. Where can everyone get hold of you? So our website is hanningtontame.com, H-A-N-N-I-N-G-T-O-N 
jamesminter.tame.com. But I suppose most people will just look me up on LinkedIn. So it's jamesminter, M-I-N-T-E-R. And yeah, do absolutely get in touch. I, I, I love meeting as many people as possible. That's what I love doing. James, thank you for your time. It's been fascinating. Thanks, Sam. Great to talk. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. Don't forget to visit samtalk.technology to discover more great shows. See you next week. Same time, same place.